from ABC7 New York, this is Eyewitness News Extra Time. Good evening, everyone. Welcome once again to this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. I'm Bill Ritter, and using Lee Goldberg's anthem, whether or not, well, whether or not, here comes more rain. The tri-state area bracing for even more rain, even as it deals with flooding and rising rivers. The Passaic River hitting its peak last night, threatening more flooding at low-lying areas. And a new round of heavy rain and gusty winds is just hours away. Not good news at all for a region that is still saturated and unable to dry out from the recent winter storms. For a taste of what's heading our way, check out these images from Illinois and Iowa. Winter's wrath on full display. Lee Goldberg here to time out what we expect tonight and the weekend. Lee? All right, ours is certainly wet, not white, although they're, the cold from that storm that's producing the blizzard conditions out in the Midwest, that ultimately gets here over the weekend. But it's a nasty night again with rain, wind, and flooding. It's basically Tuesday's storm. It's, it's a little brother, basically, but it's staggered a little later at night. It's maybe not as potent, but still very impactful. There is the big snows over the Great Lakes, and the leading edge of the rain is inching toward western New Jersey. Should be here in the next couple of hours. I think first rain drops in New York City by 9 o'clock and then getting steadier after that. Brooklyn Bridge lit up by the LEDs. Visibility is still good. You're fine in the early evening hours. Just have the umbrella later on this evening. 45. The one reason you know a storm's coming is the wind is starting to increase out of the southeast. So it's another windswept soaker. We're looking at one to two inches of rain on average. The chill comes in two stages. Temps fall on Saturday and then Arctic air comes in later Sunday into Sunday evening. Close call for snow next week. Right now it doesn't look like it's a blockbuster storm, but we're certainly within reach to get some accumulating snows, especially along the coast. One note on the temperatures, it could be balmy tomorrow morning, fall through the 40s during the day into the 30s by evening, and then an Arctic shot on Sunday will be in the low to mid 20s by Sunday night, even teens in the suburbs. Clouds are increasing. Here comes the first round of showers during the middle evening, but the front is basically 11 or midnight to about four in the morning. Look at the height of the storm, one, two o'clock in the morning. Rainfall rates could be a half an inch to an inch an hour at that point. Some gusts could go 40 to 50 miles an hour, maybe even 60 mile per hour gusts along the coast. Heaviest rains north and east of New York City by 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Still raining heavily on the east end by daybreak. Leftover showers, lingering flooding, still hazardous travel because of some of the debris out there. And then we start to clear out and it's blustery during the day. One to two inches of rain should do it. Some places could fall under an inch, but it is going to be a significant flood maker. The river flooding. Most rivers like the Saddle, Pompton, Rockaway, Peconic, you're going to maybe go into minor to moderate flooding again, but not major. We're most concerned about the Passaic River, especially Little Falls, Pinebrook, staying in major flooding right into early next week. Future cast gusts, you see it peaking overnight, 40, maybe even 50 mile per hour gusts during the overnight along the coast. Could they be a 60 mile per hour gust? Not out of the question. That could mean tree limbs down and power outages. Still blustery during the day tomorrow, by the way. Gusts could actually go to 40 miles an hour. There is your moderate to isolated major coastal flooding. The high tide cycle tomorrow morning between about 8 and 10 in the morning. 43 degrees, rising temperatures tonight, heavy rain by late evening, e increasing winds and flooding risk renewed. 56 tomorrow morning, then falling, clouds and sun and blustery in the afternoon hours, really chilly tomorrow night, feels like 20s. Here's your seven day, blustery on Sunday, pretty chilly on Martin Luther King Day, only around freezing, bitterly cold, setting the stage for a close call with a storm offshore. Looks like some snowfall, some of it might be suppressed though, and then bitterly cold after that. Another chance of rain or snow next Friday. Your seven day accurate with the forecast on Eyewitness News 11 throughout the night on ABC 7 NY. Bill? That is a busy board you have on your seven daily. Thank you. And speaking of that, there hasn't been a day this week when we haven't touched on the plight of residents in northern New Jersey, scrambling to deal with wave upon wave of flooding, 
try to mop up all the rainwater and then trying to repair all the damage. And now, of course, more rain is coming, exactly what they don't need. I want to do supporter Crystal Cranmore has the story from Little Falls. Clutching their luggage, surrounded by water, residents were carried one by one into the back of this high water rescue truck, escaping this flooded home on Bergen Street in Patterson. We are scared, you know what I mean? That's, that's the problem. Uh, everything you know about there is, is really bad. Luis Rodriguez says he called 911 as the water continued to rise. First responders helped him and two other residents get to dry land this morning. The Passaic River crested Thursday night, forcing city leaders to shut down almost two dozen streets. Residents say they're frustrated. This is what we deal with every time a heavy rain comes. We did apply for a grant, a flood resiliency grant, to build a wall to hopefully help combat some of the flooding. But we're going to need help from the federal level. Meanwhile, in Little Falls, where the river turned streets into streams, homes into islands. Rescue crews patrol the area. Residents who chose not to heed the evacuation recommendations got around in kayaks. Others put on their high boots and walked through these floodwaters, something officials advise not to do. Adam Renzulli says he had to get an inhaler to his cousin. I rolled up my pajamas and held my slippers and the inhaler in my slippers and walked it down the street. Barefoot. Barefoot, ice cold. It was like walking on razor blades. These ladies did not get any water in their homes, but won't risk driving their cars through the unknown, now confined to this neighborhood. The fact that we can't leave, not having enough groceries, and can't go to work. <laughs> yeah, and we can't go. We miss work. Still reeling from December flooding, the region now bracing for another round of wet weather. We are really concerned that it may cause an extreme prolonged flooding event for us here. And Bill, the National Weather Service says that the Passaic River will stay at major flood stage at least through Monday morning. In Little Falls, Crystal Cranmore, Channel 7 Eyewitness News. It's going to be a long weekend. Crystal, thank you for that. We invite you to stay with Eyewitness News on air and online for any new developments in the flooding and the forecast, of course, you can track the levels of the rivers in our area through an interactive map we have at ABC7NY. You get there by scanning the flow code on your screen right now. Uh, now to the Middle East and a mushrooming warlike situation that the world has feared ever since Hamas terrorized the people of Israel and Israel responded with deadly force. Last night, the U.S. and five of its allies unleashed scores of cruise missiles from Navy ships and weapons from nearly two dozen attack aircraft against the Houthi militia, a group funded by Iran and based in Yemen, just south of Saudi Arabia. The group had been attacking U.S. forces in the area, and President Biden had warned them, stop attacking or there will be consequences. Anxiety now rising there. And in our area as well, there's a large community from Yemen in Morris Park in the Bronx. As Eyewitness News reporter Jim Dolan shows us, they are worried that the ripple effects from the conflict overseas. At a mosque in Morris Park today, the faithful, many of them from Yemen, arrived for Friday prayers with so much suddenly to pray for. Of course, I got family there, and I got family in Palestine too. You know, they're my brothers, so, and I seem like we've just been targeted with that. United States and a coalition of other nations launched blistering strikes on military targets in Yemen this morning after the Iran-backed Houthi government in Yemen attacked ships in the Red Sea. The Pentagon confirmed today the strikes backed by four U.S. allies, including Great Britain, 
Tomahawk and cruise missiles, along with fighter jets, pounded over 60 military targets in Yemen, destroying weapons, radar and surveillance systems, and attack drones. Clearly in the intent here is for the U.S. and the U.K. to take out any military capability that the Houthis might have to continue to harass shipping in the Red Sea. The Houthi government claims it is only attacking ships that are related to Israel in some way, their show of support for the people of Gaza. The Pentagon says Yemen has launched 27 attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea, which 15% of the world's commerce transits. President Biden says if Yemen continues to target ships in the Red Sea, he will not hesitate to direct further measures to protect our people. The real question is how is Iran going to react because it is, these Houthi militants are backed by Iran and these missiles that you're seeing taking off right there are provided by Iran and they have also provided training and, and Iran has essentially given their approval for the Houthis to do this. I think uh, uh, USA should be more balanced. In Morris Park today, they worried about their loved ones back home. Some didn't want to talk on camera. They're worried because, you know, there's bombs going everywhere, right? The the people over the, the government over there doesn't want to stop their attack. So there's a lot of uncertainty on what's going to happen to the country, right? And their lives. It's complicated. It is. It is. And unfortunately, a lot of civilians are dying. You know, um, that shouldn't be paying the price. They lived in Yemen. They know what a powder keg the Middle East can be, and they are worried now that it is all going to explode. And if that happens, it will affect the economies of all the nations of the world. On the east side, Jim Dolan, Channel 7 Eyewitness News. It is what so many people feared, fingers crossed. Meanwhile, hundreds of demonstrators gathering on the east side of Manhattan today calling for the 132 hostages still held in Hamas custody to be released. The families desperate for word on the conditions of their loved ones. Are they still alive? One demonstrator came to show support for his two young nephews, just one and three years old. Both were taken during the terrorist attack. He's learning to, to walk okay. in a cave or in the underground, in dirt. His first birthday, as happy as, as, happy as it can be. And what is he having his birthday underground as a hostage? U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer of New York and New York Governor Hochul among the demonstrators today. The governor recalled her trip to Israel in the days following the Hamas attack on October 7th and her outrage that the hostages are still being held by Hamas terrorists. Back here in our area, the Department of Justice will seek the death penalty for Buffalo supermarket massacre, mass massacre shooter Peyton Gendron. Gendron is now 20 years old. He faces 27 federal counts, including hate crimes and firearm charges for killing 10 black people and injuring three others in this racially motivated attack in May of 2022. This is the first new capital prosecution authorized by Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Biden administration. We would like to see justice served to the point where that he would at least have some thought, some, some time to think and process what he did. And I just don't, I just don't see that happening. She does not want the death penalty for him. Again, it was not in court when federal prosecutors formally notified the judge of the intent to seek that death penalty. In his state trial last February, Gendron was sentenced to life without parole. The migrant crisis tonight taking a new turn. There are suggestions of a required curfew for migrants staying in New York City shelters. 
Some of the homeless asylum seekers trying to get food or money for their families have reportedly been panhandling on the streets of New York or sometimes knocking on people's doors asking for help. But a curfew is loaded with controversy. Here's Anthony Carlo. A woman with a child on someone's doorstep identifying herself as a migrant in need of money. We've never had that. Paul King says Bell Harbor is now seeing more panhandling than ever before. Some of it's from people coming up on their porches, using their kids as props, aggressively panhandling. We don't like to say I told you so, but I told you so. Councilwoman Joanne Areola believes the isolation and less than favorable conditions at Floyd Bennett Field now driving some asylum seekers into surrounding areas. Some of the panhandling, she says, late at night. The city now considering adding the same curfew that homeless shelters have. The way to keep the public safe is to have control over whatever additional population comes into our communities. In this moment, New York City needs support to be Lawmakers able to say the state services. has fallen short of its financial commitment to help. And though the city now estimates needing $10 billion instead of 12 through fiscal year 2025, Assemblymember Septimo says the governor needs to do all that she can. We need to be giving access for these folks to be able to make a livelihood have access to resources that they can earn on their own, earn their keep. These folks are really just looking for an opportunity, but a curfew is not the way to do that. The governor says the shifting number of migrants presents challenges to state aid. We try to be as precise as we can. We'll do our very best. How it all comes across to those seeking a better life? A lot of them are almost in shock to see that we're not so welcoming and that we're, we don't have what they thought we did. And that is just the fiscal perspective. State lawmakers went on to say that the governor should be choosing a statewide coordinator to deal with this crisis so that the burden doesn't fall all on New York City. In Bell Harbor, Queens, Anthony Carlo, Channel 7 Eyewitness News. Controversial to be sure. By the way, I spoke with Mayor Adams extensively about the migrant crisis and a lot more. You can watch my entire interview on Up Close this Sunday morning at 11 a.m. on Channel 7. 7 Eyewitness News. Coming up next, we're going to hand over Eyewitness News Extra Time to Sam Ryan for this week's edition of 7 Sports Plus. That's after the break. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 7 Sports Plus on Extra Time. I'm Sam Ryan. A busy week in sports as we saw the NFL and college football coaching carousels in full swing. We'll get to that in a bit, but first, our sports shorts. A day after announcing the Patriots' legendary coach, Bill Belichick, are parting ways after 24 seasons in New England. They've already named a successor, Gerard Mayo, becoming the 15th head coach in franchise history. He served as linebackers coach since 2019 and at just 37 years young, will become the youngest head coach in the NFL. And apparently, today's the day to replace legendary coaches. As it appears, Alabama has a new head coach. Two days after Nick Saban announced his retirement, Alabama reportedly negotiating with Washington's Kalen DeBoer. The 49-year-old took the Huskies to the national championship game. All local teams have Friday off this coming a day after the Knicks' season-high five-game winning streak came to an end at the hands of the Mavericks in Dallas. Kyrie Irving had a season-high 44 points for the Mavericks. It is New York's first loss of the year. And speaking of the Knicks, they certainly have been fun to watch of late and have moved up in the Eastern Conference standing since the addition of OG Ananobi. I caught up with Mike Forkenoff of The Athletic to talk about the difference OG has made and the Knicks' recent success. They've been fantastic since Ananobi got to New York. He's added uh, something they've really been missing, which is a big, versatile defender on defense. Like, he's so aggressive. He's 
able to corral passing lanes. He can guard one-on-one. And he's just this perfect fit into that starting lineup. Uh, and he's given them something they haven't had for uh, for such a long time, right? Uh, and, and the ability for him to play defense and to fit in well with everyone else uh, has made such a stark difference. I think it's opened up so much for the Knicks, especially helping them get out and transition and get easy buckets. And it's something that, you know, is able to gel well with Jalen Brunson when Julius Randle and, and makes up for what they lost. Yeah, I think earlier this week, uh, Jalen Brunson wasn't doing the heavy lifting, nor Julius Randle. And you saw OG with a big game at the Garden. They were chanting his name. So how comfortable does he appear now to be fitting in? It's actually been surprising how quickly he's been able to uh, make himself feel comfortable, right? Like this is from game one on immediately. Uh, Because he has that kind of game where he doesn't need the ball a lot. He doesn't need to take a lot of shots. He's such a smart player. He is uh, so versatile positionally that you can play him alongside uh, so many different guys. And the fit so far has been fantastic. You've seen their defense get so much better. They're playing faster. They're playing looser. And really, they've looked like one of the best teams in the East ever since he came to New York. Okay, so I'm going to point out two key games that, in my opinion, were pivotal. The the win over the T-Wolves and the win against the Sixers at Philly. What did those wins do for this team as far as confidence, um, as far as really cementing who they are? Yeah, I think both are huge. You're talking about two of the best teams in the NBA, right? The Wolves, I believe, had the best record in the West coming into that game. Obviously, Philadelphia is very good with the reigning MVP with Joel Embiid. And uh, they went down to Philadelphia the next day and and they waxed them, right? That that game was not close by the end. And it has to help their confidence. And not only that, um, I think it shows that what they're doing and the combination that they have can work against the upper echelon teams in the league, right? There's a difference between doing this against some of the worst teams and having had the stretch they did, those against the dregs of the NBA, uh, instead of doing this against some of the best teams in the league and showing that this fit uh, and this new combination of players can work right away and you have a very strong baseline to move on from. All right, Mike, so you talked about really with the acquisition of OG a piece that the Knicks needed, you know, as something that they needed. Is there anything else that they are lacking, something that would put them over the top, or are they good the way they are now? Do you do you foresee any additional uh, deals or or additions here? Well, I think the big thing with the Ananobi trade was that it allowed them to maintain flexibility going forward. They didn't trade any draft assets in that deal. It was Emmanuel Quickly and it was RJ Barrett, and those are steep prices to pay, but it maintained. Uh, you know, their cap flexibility, maintain their full tranche of draft picks going forward. And they do need help, you know, by trading quickly, they opened up a need on the bench. They need a playmaker and a score on that second unit. Miles McBride is going to try to uh, slide into that role a little bit. Obviously, uh, Tom Thibodeau is now using uh, Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson differently in his rotation to stagger their minutes and split them up a little bit. But they still need help. That becomes, uh, you know, a question, obviously, for the playoffs as well. And I think they're still obviously missing a, another top-notch premier player. I don't think that's going to get settled in season. I, I doubt that they'll trade for a star in the next month or so before the NBA trade deadline. But they can do with kind of little marginal additions, either some scoring power off the bench or another big man uh, to go and play behind Isaiah Hartenstein as they wait to see if Mitchell Robinson has a chance to come back later on in this season. So, you know, the past couple of weeks we've seen consistency. We've seen the results. What have you seen around the team as far as the buzz? Uh, I think as maybe Jalen Brunson said, the vibes have been immaculate uh, around the Knicks. And it's so clear that they enjoy 
being uh, with one another, playing with one another. And I think that matters too, especially in this part of the season when you get to January and February and kind of the dog days in the NBA season. And it's, you know, that comes from winning, right? Usually uh, the vibes are great because you're winning a lot and the Knicks have really ramped it up in the last few weeks. And so you can sense that there's a, you know, there's a different type of attitude around the Knicks this year as they get to be a, a, you know, a better team and as they get to try to establish themselves as a contender in the East. And much more to come on 7 Sports Plus on Extra Time. Back to the gridiron. It is now the offseason for the Jets and Giants. We're going to hear from ESPN's Jordan Renan on what changes the Giants could make. We will be right back. No playoffs for the Jets or the Giants, but some accolades for several players. A pair of Jets earning all-pro first-team honors linebacker Quincy Williams and cornerback Sauce Gardner. As for the, the uh, Giants, linebacker Dexter Lawrence earning second-team honors. Speaking of the Giants, the team parted ways with defensive coordinator Wink Martindale earlier this week. While other changes could be in store, Ryan Field caught up with ESPN's Jordan Renan. We expect there to be some changes with the Giants this offseason. We saw a bunch of them on Monday. They fired two defensive assistants, the special teams coach. But, of course, the big news, Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator, resigning. How big of a shock was that to you, and how did we get to this point? Yeah, we've heard for a while that they were in a bad place in the middle of the season, and that the relationship between Brian Dable and Wink Martindale was not good. And from the people I spoke to, it didn't get much better down the stretch of the season. And as a result, here we stand, Giants looking for now a new defensive coordinator. Wink Martindale is expected to resign. They also fired special teams coach Thomas McGehee. That means at least two of the three coordinators are now gone, and the Giants are going to have to fill those spots. Obviously, tremendous upheaval for one offseason. It's very rare you get rid of two, maybe even three coordinators in one offseason. Well, how big of a loss is this, though, for the Giants yeah. in terms of what Wink meant to that defense this season? It's a massive loss. When you talk to the players, they love Wink Martindale, right? He's a favorite of the players. He's especially open to them. I mean, he's super calm on the sideline, uh, is very open in his rooms, really promotes open and honest conversation. And that to players, that's what they love, right? They love that kind of approach when you're talking about a coach. And now when you're talking about Wink Martindale, like moving on from him is difficult because the Giants spent two years learning and getting better in his system and in his scheme. And now to move on in year three of Brian Dable and Joe Shane, that could be a significant problem. How about as far as personnel goes when we look at the players and who's going to be on this roster in 2024? If you're GM Joe Shane sitting there with the number six pick in April's draft, are you looking at quarterback? And if so, what does that mean for Daniel Jones's future? Yeah, for sure. I think anything is really on the table here when it comes to the number six overall pick. This is supposed to be a strong quarterback draft. There could be five, maybe even up to six quarterbacks in the first round of this draft. So the Giants, whether they look at a quarterback at number six or potentially even trading back into the back end of the first round. Remember, they have two second round picks after trading Leonard Williams to Seattle earlier this season. So those are both distinct, you know, clear possibilities for Joe Shane and the Giants because the reality is when you talk about Daniel Jones, yes, the Giants believe in Daniel Jones as a quarterback, but he does come with injury risk and injury concern. He now has had two neck injuries and a torn ACL in the past three years alone. Can you really build your team around that? Joe Shane, I asked him that exact question on Monday. He said, yes, you can, but at the same time, you know, he can't publicly come out and say no and show his cards at this point.
It's going to be fascinating to watch it all unfold. April's draft, you can see it here on Channel 7, and it's going to be here before we know it. Jordan, thanks for your time. We appreciate it, as always. It certainly will. Stay tuned for that. This wraps up this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. Thank you so much for joining us. I am Sam Ryan. Have a great night, everybody.